Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword, in the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, in his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I've labored in vain, I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense, recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, As we continue to gather together during this Advent season, I pray for a renewed sense of gratitude and love for your Son, our Savior Jesus. Um, Holy Spirit, I pray that today and throughout this Advent season, you would assure, convict, and soften our hearts to receive the reconciling love of our Lord, our Lord who was born to bring us into relationship with the triune God and will come again to ultimately bring us home to live with you, Abba Father, Lord Jesus and Holy Spirit, forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. How do you choose what information uh, to put your trust in? How do you choose what information to put your trust in? This is a question that I've been struggling with. I don't know, it feels like more recently than ever, and that's because I feel like there's a lot more information available to us that we need to sift through to make important decisions and conclusions about uh, really important things going on in our world, politics, current events, and it could be really overwhelming to sift through all the information, all the different sources, and their various, uh, you know, uh, angles or motivations, and it can be really overwhelming. Information is great, Um, it really is, it helps us make better decisions, but that's kind of dependent in our ability to navigate and decipher what sources of information we should put our trust in. If you think about it, we're actually, with, with, with all the information that's out there, what we're actually being asked to do is to trust more people than we ever have before because it's people producing the information we have access to. Um... The tough thing is that with more information, there also comes, as I'm not sure if I have to convince you guys of this, but with more information, there's also more uh, misinformation, right? Um, And I guess I've been asking myself as I've been preparing for the sermon, why why is that the case? 
Why is it the case that with more information that's available to us, there's also, that seems to naturally beget or produce more misinformation? Um, and I don't think it's just a couple of bad actors or, you know, this media source having this bias or this politician is known to not represent themselves as, as well as they should. Uh, what I want to argue today is that we all have a tendency to misrepresent the truth and ourselves for all sorts of reasons. Um, we do it to get people to like us, um, to make more money, to move forward in our careers, to defend ourselves, and, and to um, maybe escape conflict um, or avoid conflict when sometimes that's necessary for reconciliation um, or when we're caught in a lie, right? Sometimes we don't fess up immediately. We all have a tendency to misrepresent the truth, misrepresent ourselves for all sorts of reasons. Um, now, the issue with that is, is that unfortunately that does allow for the environment of misinformation and mistrust that we, we see in our world. You may not feel like you're um, playing into that or influencing that in any sort of significant way, but when we do misrepresent ourselves and misrepresent the truth for our own sake, we do allow for this environment of misinformation, mistrust that we see in our world. And the result of that, in part, is a lot of the strife, um, polarization, and conflict that we see, um, not just in our world, but let's just say our country today. So again, I guess I'm trying to argue that instead of maybe striving for unity and reconciliation and bringing toge people together in a way through the way that we speak the truth and doing that more consistently and more accurately, we do have a tendency of misrepresenting ourselves and misrepresenting the truth um, for our own sake, which ultimately begets or produces the environment of misinformation and mistrust that we see in our world. Um, so the question is, if, if that's true, then can we trust anyone? How do we become people who more consistently speak the truth and maybe even can become reconcilers in our world instead of um, adding on to the division that we see in our world today, in our churches, in our families, in our friendships. You may not think it, but God says that that's possible, that we can become people who speak the truth more consistently, that, be, that are trustworthy, people who are reconcilers in our world instead of um, people who speak the truth in a way that actually, again, um, adds to the culture of misinformation and mistrust that we see in our world today. Uh, we're going to see how God um, makes it possible for us to become these kind of people through the use of his son, his servant. We've learned a lot about the servant the past couple weeks, and so um, I'm probably going to reemphasize some things that Jim already have, has already said, but we're also going to look at a unique aspect of their servant today through our passage. We're going to see that God calls him our great reconciler, all right? So we're going to ask two questions about the Lord's servant today. Who is he? Who is this great reconciler? And how exactly has he, has he brought reconciliation to our world? God, uh, our, our scripture, our passage is going to argue that this servant spoke such powerful truth that it brought reconciliation to our world that's never been seen before. And he's brought it in a way that actually enables us to, to speak truth in that matter um, as well. So, First question is, who is this servant? Verse 1 uh, starts off by saying, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. Again, I'm, I'm on Isaiah chapter 49, looking at the beginning of verse 1. 
Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. I mentioned earlier that we rise when we hear the scripture reading because we're, um, we agree that we're listening to the God of the universe, our creator. There's only one being or one person in the entire Old Testament that says, listen to me and commands the attention of the world in this way, and that's God. The Lord's servant seems to be saying that he's like God. He's commanding the world to listen to him and to his words. Not only that, but we look at the rest of verse 1, and it says, The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. So not only is he claiming that he's God, but he's also claiming that he's going to be born from a woman, that he's human, right? Bold claim. Anyone comes up to you on the side of the street and tells you that they're God, you're going to want to find a quick and easy way to exit that conversation, right? Um, it's, it's kind of strange. So why in the world should we trust what the servant has to say, that he's both God and man, apparently? He's going to answer this question by telling us what, what his purpose was for being born as a man. We're going to jump over to verses 5 and 6, and we'll go back to the preceding verses later on. But if we look at verse 5, it says, Now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. Skip over to verse 6. It says, he says, God is saying this of the servant, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. So what we learn in verses 5 and 6 is that the servant was born to reconcile human creation, not just the people of Israel, the entire world, back to God. It's hard to understand the impact of these two verses and God's desire to, be, to want to be reconciled with the world uh, without reading the rest of Isaiah. But just to say in the first several chapters of Isaiah, after you read them, you're going to ask yourself, why in the world would God want to be reconciled to the people of Israel or to its surrounding nations in the first place? The reason being is that at, if you just read the first few chapters, you see God exposing the sin of the people of Israel and the world again and again. And we're not just we're not talking about God being like petty or anything like that. We're talking about God exposing true evil. Um, we're talking about a religious and political corruption, oppressing the poor, injustice towards widows and, and orphans, right? Like, you know, who, who does that, right? But um, this is, this is what, this is, these were the sins that the people of Israel and the surrounding nations were participating in. So that, again, will leave, will leave you to ask yourself, why would God want to be reconciled to the world and to the people of Israel during this time, um, it's it's a it's a you know it's it's just a crazy thing to think about that God, again and again, shows throughout the Old Testament and here in Isaiah, um, in these latter chapters and the servant songs that He still wants to be reconciled to the people of Israel and to the world. Um, it almost seems a little naive and foolish, but His love for His creation for His children is that great. He could just wipe out Israel and the nations and start all over again, but that's not what he wants to do. He wants to use his servant to reconcile the world back to himself. And I think this is one of the reasons why we can trust the Lord's servant and his bold claim that he's both divine and human, because despite being presented as this powerful figure um, who could theoretically wipe out Israel, wipe out the entire world for for their sins and, and for the rejection of God, we see that he is willing to be used by God to bring human creation back 
back to him, back to God. How exactly is the Lord's servant going to do that? Right? How exactly is the Lord's servant going to do that? If you look at verse 2, the beginning of verse 2, it says, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. All right, the Lord's servant is, if he's divine, you might expect that he would be equipped with something more than just his words uh, to, to bring about reconciliation between humanity and between God. But that's all he has, right? That's all he has. It's his words. But apparently they're powerful enough to bridge the great chasm that's existed between human beings and God ever since humanity decided to reject their creator. But how in the world can words be this powerful? Powerful enough to bring reconciliation between humanity and God. I want to illustrate this by having us think through how our own words affect uh, either negatively or positively. They can have a real large effect in our relationships. So I'm going to illustrate this by reflecting on a scene of, uh, of an episode of Yellowstone that I just watched. Um, I'm not sure how many of you have watched that show. Um, I hear it's pretty popular. Uh, I just, I just, I'm in the second season now. Um, but during, during the opening scene of an episode in the se- second season, we're, we're flashing back between a conversation between John Dutton, who's the owner of the Yellowstone Ranch, and his son Jamie. Okay? The, sh- the show, if you don't know, is set in modern day. Um, but the flashback goes back maybe 20, 25 years when Jamie's old enough to start thinking seriously about college and what he should do in his future. John, uh, John Dutton, again, the father, asked Jamie, ever think about what you want to be when you grow older? Jamie says, you, right? Now, it's hard, hard to uh, understand the impact of that, of that short word without watching the show, but from we, what we know about Jamie is that he has this um, insatiable need for approval, not to, from, from everyone to some degree, but especially from his father, John. Now, John is emotionally distant. Maybe he's just kind of a man of his, of his time. Um, but he's also made his family's ranch the most important thing in his life. As a result, John and his family are one of the most influential and powerful families in the area, in Montana, but it comes at a great cost, right? It comes at a cost of his children's sense of security, value, psychological well-being, and yes, I'm, to some degree, I am talking about Beth in particular when, with that phrase, if, if you guys um, have seen the show. But, um, but in another sense, all of his children suffer from this, and as adults, they behave in some pretty destructive ways. So when Jamie tells his father, oh, not to mention they, they've also gone through an extreme family kind of traumatic incident that doesn't seem to be talked about or processed, at least thus far on the show. So they also have that going against them. But when Jamie tells his father that he wants to be him when he gets older, your heart kind of breaks for Jamie. Because what's underneath that response feels like it's just a child crying out for the approval of his father. Now, John, he responds by laughing, not like, not like, like in a mocking way, but it's kind of unaware and dismissive of what his son is trying to tell him. Further on in the conversation, John tells Jamie that he applied for Jamie to go to Harvard. Apparently, Jamie has no idea where Harvard is. Let's suspend disbelief, right? Um, when he finds out it's in the Boston area, he complains and says that's too far away. Again, your heart breaks. John, your son is trying to tell you that he loves you, that he wants to be near to you, right? Um, <clears throat> so your heart breaks for him. 
Why did John apply for Jamie to go to Harvard? He says, you want to be me someday? Then become something that can help me protect this place, the ranch. John continues to lay out his plans for Jamie, tells Jamie he wants him to become a lawyer. That's why he's having him go to Harvard. Jamie asks why, because he knows his father hates lawyers. John says, lawyers are the swords of this century. Words are weapons now. I need you to learn how to use them to protect the family ranch. Now, what's ironic about that phrase, I mean, it's, it's true, right? It's true. Um, but what's so ironic about the phrase is, it's not just that there's actually a lot of violence in the show. It's one of the reasons why I kind of struggle recommending it to people. There, there is a lot of violence in the show. So, um, um, but what's also ironic about that phrase is the fact that John fails to see how his own words or his lack of words, right, in approving his son and articulating his unconditional love for him, are, that's actually wounding his son, right? And John justifies what he's doing, his desire to protect the family ranch, by saying that this is, this is a way of protecting his children's inheritance, which isn't a bad thing in and of itself, but protection and preservation for the sake of one's family is, you know, can become entirely selfish and harmful when it becomes more important than your own family members that you're supposedly trying to protect. So again, what we're seeing is John has groomed his son Jamie to use his words to protect his family's ranch. And if you've seen the show at all, you, you know that there's a lot of harm, division, there's this toxic us versus them mentality that's um, you know, a theme of the show. In our passage, what we see is that the Lord's servant is grooming his son to use his words not to bring further division between humanity and God, but to unite them, to reconcile them, right? If you're receiving information from a source whose sole motivation is to bring people together, in this case, Lord's servant wants to bring humanity back to God, that might be a source worth trusting in. And I think that's a great diagnostic question if you're trying, like me, to sift through all the information that's out there to make important decisions about things. It's not a, it's not a diagnostic question that's apl applicable all the time, but it's helpful. What is the motivation of this, of this source of, of information that I'm, or this source where I'm receiving this information, right? How are they articulating maybe the oppo opponent, their opponent's uh, viewpoint? Are they caustic? Do they lack grace? Is there, a, is there a selfish motivation going on here? That's gonna affect the way that they produce information, right? And so when we look at the motivation of the Lord's servant, we see that all he wants to do is bring reconciliation between God and humanity. So he might be someone worth trusting in. Not only that, but I think he's also an example that we can follow in our own efforts towards reconciliation. In verse 3 it says, And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. God is calling his servant Israel, um, in a way what he's really saying is that you are the ideal Israel. Israel was created, we were created, to receive the unconditional love of our creator God and reflect it back to humanity, to creation, right? The people of Israel have not done this. We don't do this. But the Lord's servant is the ideal Israel. He receives the love of the Father, the unconditional, the unconditional love of God, and he blesses others in ways um, 
yeah, they're just incredible. Um, this is our purpose as human beings, to receive and reflect the love of our Creator, and the Lord's servant has, uh, does this perfectly. So I think there's an invitation here during this Advent season, maybe even in the New Year, since Advent's about to wrap up in a week, to participate in the servant's ministry of reconciliation today. How do we do that? You, you might want to prayerfully consider who you might need to reconcile with during this Advent season or during the new year. There's a couple ways for you to, that you can think about discerning that. One, if you have very negative or obvious negative feelings towards someone, resentment, bitterness, that might be a sign, right, that that's someone you might need to reconcile with. But more subtly, if you're indifferent, let's say, towards your spouse, right, you've grown indifferent towards your love for them, um, or towards their well-being, that might be a sign that there's something that needs to be reconciled there. So once you might have, once you figure out who that person is, the Lord's servant is recommending us, telling us that we need to speak, right? Speak words of reconciliation. We don't use words as, as weapons to intentionally harm people, although when we do, you know, speak truth that occasionally can offend people and that's, that's kind of the case, but we don't intentionally go, go about doing that. Our intention in reconciliation is to be reconciled to our loved one, to whoever we decide we need to be reconciled with. So that might look like you having to be honest, right? Being, truth about your, being true about yourself and, 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 and how you've contributed, contributed to the division in your relationship with someone, um, and that might result in the other person also having to say sorry and, and confess. Um, and that, that might, might be one way that reconciling conversation kind of looks like. Um, but it also might look like you just calling, so, calling someone out and letting them know, hey, this is how I'm experiencing you and it's causing division in our relationship, right? Um, and unfortunately, sometimes that might also lead to boundaries, right? But we don't use boundaries necessarily to, uh, to avoid conflict. We use boundaries in our relationships to let someone know, hey, this is what you're doing, this is what you're saying, you're not stopping, and so I have to place a boundary here. The long-term effect of that boundary, I hope and pray, is for us to be reconciled, right? In any case, whatever that conversation looks like, my hope is that your motivation for reconciliation with that person is a reflection, an intentional reflection of God's reconciling undeserving mercy and love towards you. And the reason why that is important is because let's say you have a reconciling conversation with someone and, and things are great. You might think that that's the end of, of your need to reconcile with people, which is not the case. This is a lifelong ministry. If you become, you know, as you become more and more convicted in, in understanding the love of God for you, his unconditional love for you that we don't deserve, um, you're going to want your love for people should grow, right? And the net of people that you want to love should grow, right? And, but because we're in this side of heaven, unfortunately, we're going to harm those people that we love, in which case we're going to need to have reconciling, uh, reconciling conversations um, throughout our life. Um, but I guess, when I, again, what I'm trying to say um, is that we, want, we should follow the Lord, Lord's servant in his example I'm, I'm recommending or imploring you guys to consider uh, reconciling during this Advent season to make it a part of your Advent rhythm um, and perhaps a New Year's resolution as well. The Lord's servant spoke in order to reconcile us to God. So go and do the same.
Lastly, I want to leave you with a better reason for why you should consider um, um, reconciling with others as part of your Advent rhythm or New Year's resolution in the coming New Year. Um, let's end by looking at verse 4. The beginning of verse 4, the servant says, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. I love the servant's honesty here, right? I think it's pretty refreshing and astounding. He talks about how difficult it is, um, his work of reconciliation and how difficult it is to reconcile creation, human creation back to God. And um, maybe this is something that you can relate with as well. Perhaps you've tried and tried and tried to reconcile with someone and um, nothing seems to be happening. The holiday season accentuates and highlights our difficulties in our relationships, right? And so let's say you've, you've tried and tried to reconcile with someone, and again, they're not going to show up on Christmas or on New Year's, right? God knows, in a sense, what that feels like. The Lord's servant knows what that feels like. Jesus knows what that feels like. And yet, why does God continue to pursue his people despite their constant rejection of his love and reconciliation? In the rest of verse 4, it says, Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense, which just means reward, with my, is with my God. The Lord's servant says that what motivates him to continue to try to bring human creation back to God is a reward. Now, that kind of sounds selfish, Right? on the surface, but what, what does that exactly mean? What is this reward that he's talking about? Um, in order to be concise, we need to look ahead um, and look at uh, Hebrews 12.2, which says, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The theme of this week in Advent is joy, and I think it's amazing to consider the fact that when Jesus thought about reconciling you, being reconciled with you, having, doing the work that he did on the cross so that you can be reconciled to God, when he thought about that while he was on the cross, the joy of your reconciling relationship, of your relationship with God being reconciled, being reconciled actually helped him to endure the suffering on the cross. It brought him joy. That joy allowed him to endure the suffering on the cross, which is kind of crazy to think about. When Jesus participated in the most powerful act of reconciliation in human history, dying for us and taking on all of our sins, including our failures to be reconcilers in our world, including the various ways that we use our words to hurt those that, are love, that we love, what motivated Jesus to die on a Roman cross for us was the reward that he would one day be seated at the right hand of God in heaven and glory at the reconciliation that the triune God brought to the world through Jesus the Son, the Lord's servant. Now, obviously, this reconciliation came at a great cost. Jesus had to be faithful to do something that no one will or ever has been asked to do. Yes, Jesus, the Lord's servant, was equipped to bring reconciliation to the world through the power of his words, but what words exactly, right? What words exactly? We see occasionally in the Gospels that Jesus chose to not speak when he could have, um, when he was tried unjustly, um, when he was arrested, he claims that he could have brought 
angels to come and protect him, and he decided not to speak. But he did speak words at one point that brought about the reconciliation that, he is, that the prophets of the Old Testament had promised that was going to happen through the Lord's servant. What were those words? They weren't words of obvious strength in any way, but they were words of weakness, vulnerability, and shame. On the cross, the Lord's servant said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Despite having the most unconditional and beautiful love that one can have, a love that Jesus had with the Father for eternity, he was willing to experience a great chasm, the lack of reconciliation in his human form between himself and God, so that if we put our faith in Christ, we never have to experience that broken relationship again. He did this, so all the while, if you wonder if God wants to love you or be reconciled with you, despite the fact that you've lied again and again or harmed those you love through your words or through your actions, and it makes you wonder whether or not God loves you or wants to be reconciled to you, you have to contend with the cross and those words that Jesus said. Why, why, why have you forsaken me? And realize that if you put your faith in Christ, God can never forsake you. You will never experience the shame, the abandonment, the lack of reconciliation that Jesus had to experience on the cross for our sake. And so, friends, um, we're not just called to trust the Lord's servant, but because of what he did on the cross for us, we can do more than that. We can love him, worship him, and obey him. So go reconcile, for Christ has reconciled us to God. As Christians, we believe that Jesus, the Lord's servant, will come back to complete the act of reconciliation that he began when he was born in human flesh and died on the cross for our sins, and he's going to come back and bring us home with the triune God forever and ever. Why should we go and be reconcilers in our world? Why should we try to speak the truth, to be honest about ourselves, about who God is, even even though that can be uncomfortable at times? It's because the Lord's servant was faithful in order to reconcile us to God, and that's why we go reconcile. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, friends, go reconcile, for Christ has reconciled us to God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, The odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later. <laughs>